Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 today. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Uh, we don't have cable at our house. I don't say that as like a way for you to feel bad for us or as like a humble brag, but we don't have cable at our house. And so I don't watch sports very often. But this last weekend, I was in a situation where I could watch the NBA Finals. Any Knicks fans in the house today? Yeah? Thanks, John. They had a blowout win on Friday. And they did something that's never been done before. They held the team to less than 80 points. And so if you're a Knicks fan, Friday night was a, was a great night. But can I just confess this to you? Sometimes I forget basketball exists. Anybody else in the house feel that way as well? Uh, every wife almost in the house is raising their hand. Uh, some of you wish it didn't exist at all. We could put baseball or football or any other sport in that particular category. Amen, ladies? You're with me? All right. If it ended tomorrow, your life might be improved by the fact that it, it doesn't exist. Um, but even though sometimes I forget that it exists, I, when I think about basketball, I often get very confident about my ability to play basketball. Uh, you don't have to look at me for very long to know that I'm not very good at basketball. Uh, I can shoot a little bit, I can't dribble, I can't dunk. There are a lot of things that I can't do when it comes to basketball. And when I go to play basketball and I play against someone that's good, I become very painfully aware of how bad at basketball I actually am. I wonder that for many of us, that potentially we fall into one of these categories when it comes to our own sin. There are many times where several hours go by, maybe even days at point, that I forget that sin is part of the world around us. And even that I live in a flesh that is under the curse of sin. Oftentimes, I'm also really confident about my personal ability to fight sin. And let me tell you how I express this, how I express my overconfidence in my ability to fight sin. When I see someone else sin, I'll say things like, I can't believe that they would do that, which implied in that is, I would never do that. What I'm saying is that I'm so good at not sinning that I would never commit the sin that, that they committed. But oftentimes, too, I struggle with feeling so defeated in my sin, and it troubles me that I can't seem to have victory in it. And I oscillate back and forth between one of these three categories. I forget that sin exists, I think that I can beat it, or I'm completely defeated by it. I, I'm in one of those three categories. But let me suggest to you today that today's text is going to present something to us that should absolutely dominate the landscape of our minds when it comes to sin. And, and here, here it is. 
Here's the thing that has to dominate our minds when we think about sin in the world and our own personal sin. Here it is. The sinless Christ has appeared with his perfect sacrifice to give us the power to actively fight sin. When you think about sin in the world or in your life, the thing that has to dominate your thinking as a believer in Jesus Christ is that the sinless Christ has put to death our own, self, our own self-righteousness. He's given us the ability to have victory over sin and to actively fight sin every day that we're alive. The sinless Christ must dominate our minds when we think about sin. Our thesis for this passage today is this. The great message of the Bible is that the sinless Christ has appeared. This is the event that the whole Old Testament anxiously awaited, and now we get to see and know the coming of this sinless Christ. His appearance has accomplished many things and should invoke in us a response out of love for his person and work on our behalf. In this particular text today, I think John is going to give us a stark contrast between children of God and children of the devil that is meant to clarify and to protect us. And so with all of this in your mind, I I want to encourage you to stand with me one more time as we read the Word of God. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 10. 1 John 3, starting in verse 4, I said 10 tonight. 1 John 3, verse 4, it says this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I think this is the key verse of this whole passage, verse 5, number six, or verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. Let me suggest to you in this particular passage today that what John presents to us is the fact that the appearance of the sinless Christ accomplished four things. The appearance of the sinless Christ accomplished four things. Before we can get into this topic of the things that the sinless Christ accomplished, let us stop and ponder for a moment the sinless perfection of our Savior. Because without the sinless nature of our perfect Savior, there is no help for you and I to be able to fight sin or to have any victory over sin or to see the death of sin. Christ, if he is not sinless, cannot be the perfect sacrifice for us for our sins and cannot, as John reminded us in 1 John, be both the advocate and propitiator of our sins. But... 
This text reminds us, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is sinless. There is no sin in him. According to the text, one of the first things that the appearance of the sinless Christ accomplished is the taking away of our sins. Look at verse 5. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him is no sin. This idea of taken away, and again, brothers and sisters, wherever you're at in the process of thinking about sin, you have to conceptualize in this, you have to conceptualize this in your mind. The blood of Jesus Christ has taken away your sin. The blood of the sinless Christ has taken away your sin, not just partially, but completely to the point that you are no longer condemned in your trespasses and sins. But according to this text, you are now a child of God. This was mentioned in our class earlier today, but be reminded in the Gospel of John, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 29, remember John the Baptist's words upon seeing Jesus come towards him. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now John not only takes this world idea of the sin and he personalizes it to you that John, or that Jesus in his perfect sinlessness and his perfect sacrifice on your behalf has taken away your sin. We have to be reminded that this sinless nature of Christ is actually the culmination of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that was meant to only temporarily atone for their sins. There was a continual offering that was given, a blood offering of sheep and goats as the payment for sin. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 reminds us of the significance but not the full payment. It says this, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. But the problem with this particular sacrifice is that it had to continually be offered, that the sheep and the goats had to be sacrificed on the altar continually. And this continual nature of this is meant to point us forward to Jesus Christ, who is the once and all sinless and perfect sacrifice for our sins. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, the atonement, meaning the payment of the blood of the goats and sheep that only could temporarily atone for their sins was just a shadow of the good things that were to come. He says, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer need any or no longer have any consciousness of sins. You see, there needed to be a perfect sacrifice once and for all for our sin, and that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews continues forward in, in chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10. He says, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is Jesus. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the previous covenant where the, the sheep and the goats were sacrificed, and brings in the, the new covenant. 
He says in verse 10, and by that we will have, and by that will we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine having to continually offer animals for your sin time after time and the incredible relief that they would have felt knowing that this once and for all sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, was sacrificed on behalf of their sins. The sinless Christ did this so that your sins could be taken away. But not only did He take our sins away, this text tells us that He also made us righteous. It's one thing to be declared not guilty. It's another thing to be declared righteous. But this has to, in our minds, bring about some conflict because we know from the Scriptures, in particular Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where, where he's quoting the psalmist there, he says words like this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. There is no righteous person in the history of the world. They don't exist except for the sinless, perfect Jesus Christ. None of us earn the righteousness that was given to us by Him, but in Him we are able to be righteous, according to verse 7, just as He is righteous. We've got to get our brains around this, or at least attempt to, that, that Jesus Christ, perfect sinlessness, has been imparted to you as part of His sacrificial atonement on your behalf not just for the forgiveness of your sins, but for what's called the imputed alien righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that was completely foreign to you until the sinless Christ gives it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 says it this way, for our sake, get this in your minds, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange that has ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus Christ takes our sinless, or our sin. And, and takes that sin, dies as payment for their sin, and then gives to us His righteousness. Let's go back to the categories I discussed before about sin and our interaction with it. Let me speak directly to those categories. To you, brother and sister, who may have forgotten their sin and may have taken for granted what it means to be forgiven, be revived in the truth that your sin cost Jesus Christ his life and that he gladly laid down his life for us. For the one who started to believe that you have sin defeated on your own, know that you are in great danger. Sin is always crouching at the door, and without relying on the power of the sinless Christ to help us fight sin, we will be tempted and we will give in to sin if we try to fight it in our own power. But because we have the power of the sinless Christ, we can make war against sin in our own lives. For you, friend, brother, or sister who is overwhelmed by the power of sin, 
Know that God loves you so much that He gave His perfect Son as a perfect sacrifice for you. And instead of being overwhelmed by the power of sin, let the love of God in the person and work of the sinless Christ overwhelm your heart and mind. The sinless work of Christ accomplished a third thing. The third thing is the works of the devil are destroyed. I think sometimes in the modern day, too much power is given to the devil. He seems to almost have equal power with God and Jesus Christ. But this text reminds us that he is not more powerful than God and that everything that he has done was destroyed by Jesus Christ. But we must ask, what are the works of the devil? What is it that the devil has done? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, of the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, the works of the devil is sin from the beginning. You know this from the book of Genesis, who is the tempter that comes to Eve and leads Eve and Adam astray. Is it not the devil? The devil is and was the originator of sin. And we see this very clearly in passages like Genesis 3 or 2 Corinthians eleven three. But John in his gospel says it this way, John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But the devil has no power over the sinless Christ. And in fact, this passage tells us of the second person, or the second purpose of Jesus' coming to destroy the works of the devil. Now, this particular word has, a, has an interesting meaning, and I, I want you to, to try and conceptualize this with me. Destroyed means undoing or dissolving that which forms the bond of cohesion. Let me say that to you again. Destroy means to undo or dissolve that which forms the band of cohesion. Now, what does that mean? Right now, the curse of sin done by the devil is bound in some sense to everything in the universe. It's bound to us in that we were born with a sin nature and still live in our flesh. And it's it's bound to the entire universe in that everything is under the curse of sin. Your work, in part, is difficult because of the curse of sin. Childbirth is difficult because of the curse of sin. Sickness and death happens because of the curse of sin. Every one of us is impacted and in some sense bound by the curse of sin. Nothing is untouched by sins. Now, here's the implications of this. In your life right now, you already have been given victory over sin. The works of the devil have been destroyed in us. You have the capacity to live righteously or to live sinfully. Spiritually, the, the, the devil's works, sin, has been destroyed in you. 
and one day the curse of sin will be removed from the entirety of the universe. When you see passages that talk about a new heaven and a new earth, what is happening there is once and for all the sinless Christ is destroying, he's unbinding sin from the entire universe. The spiritual effects of sin with the death and resurrection of the sinless Christ have been unbound from us. But then one day he will destroy the physical effects of sin. There will be a final victory. Paul says this in Romans chapter 16, verses 20. The peace of God, or the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I love what's being, this uh, picture that's being predicted or pictured here. This idea of stomping Satan into the ground, of him being crushed under our feet. And then he ends the passage of like, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as you stomp the devil under your feet. This continues to be pictured even through the ends of the Scripture in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10. Listen to these words, brothers and sisters. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to, guess what he does when he's released? To deceive the nations that are at the four corner of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. I, we've got to like try to picture this stuff in our minds. To see the power of God, we have to picture these things in, in terms of what we are. So an army that is like the sand of the sea marches up over a plain of the earth surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And and if we're not careful, we'll just read this as if this is something casually that's happening here, but this is the works of the devil being destroyed by the sinless Christ in a fiery destruction. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city where Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The works of the devil are destroyed once and for all. But this particular passage reminds us that not only were our sins taken away, not only were we made righteous, not only are the works of the devil destroyed, You and I, as followers, as believers in Jesus Christ, we were made the children of God. This text reminds us that we were born of God. It uses this phrase that God's seed abides in Him. And John is continuing this theme of abiding in Christ in this particular passage. He he reminds us that that the way in which we can abide in Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ already abides in us by making us his spiritual children. 
He created us and gave us life, and now He imparts to us the spiritual life that is only possible through the sinless Christ. John, in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, says it this way, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were not who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brothers and sisters, whatever we face today or tomorrow for the rest of our lives, we can rest assured that your heavenly Father loves you, and He has made you His child. But I, I, I want to, to remind you and go back and, and think a little bit more If we were born in trespasses and sins, even though our sin nature has been put to death as we've been had our sin taken away and the righteousness of God given to us, the danger is still to think that we can make it without the sinless Christ or or to start to fade in our walk with Jesus Christ. But but he uses this word over and over again: keep or practice. Keep or practice. And, And when we're attempting to live as children of God. There must be a continual thought, a continual practice, a continual habit, a continual keeping of knowing the Word of God so that when we face the works of the devil or we're tempted in our own sin, we are ready to defeat those works of Satan with the Word of God in the power of the sinless Christ. So this text gives us a few things that we're to avoid, but a few things that we're to practice. But let me, let me just suggest to you that, that this is the danger as now we enter into things to avoid and things to practice. The danger is to start thinking legalistically about your walk with Christ. Doing these things as a way to earn the favor of God is legalism, and it will not save you or allow you to go to heaven. These things are done as a response to the sinless Christ's work on our behalf. So the the things that this text reminds us that as the children of God we are to avoid are things that we do in response to the salvation that we've already been given in Jesus Christ, not an attempt to earn them. And I want to be very clear inside of this. Here's just a few things to avoid as the children of God. Those born of God with both a promise from him as his children and the fact that they live as his children evidence. The first thing that we're to avoid, according to this text, is the practice of sin, which is lawlessness. This is actually done as a, uh, as a contrast, as a, an emboldening in verse 3. Verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. But it says that in verse 4, everyone who, pra- who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And I-, I want to, again, make a very important distinction here. He says in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. This is the idea of habitual, continuing, continuing to do sin. Because each, each one of us are going to struggle with sin in our life. And even previously in this letter, in 1 John chapter 2, John says, if anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father. It almost an, an anticipates the fact that you and I are going to struggle with sin. But the fact that he's addressing here 
with these words, the practice of sin seems to indicate that those who are in Jesus Christ, those who have God as their Father, may still struggle with sin, but it is not the habit of their life. It is not what they continually practice. But there's something that we need to define in this particular text before we move forward. He says, sin is lawlessness, but what is lawlessness? What type of law is he talking about? Well, a simple definition of lawlessness is that which is without law. But as any good scholar knows, you can't use the word in the definition, so that doesn't hold water. Because then you still have to answer, what is the law? I think in the Scriptures, we we see predominantly two types of law. We see the Mosaic law, but we also see a law in the New Testament that's often referred to as the law of love. Now, there are times in the New Testament where the Mosaic law is mentioned, like Romans chapter 4, verse 7, which is quoting Psalms 32. Let me suggest to you here that what he's not talking about is keeping the letter of the Mosaic law. But what he's talking about is keeping the law of love that John talks about in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. What is that law? John 13, 34 through 35 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, he gives a qualifier there for that love. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, in this day and age, this was rightly mentioned in the class this morning, love has almost become exclusively defined as some sort of physical fulfillment of a certain nature. And on top of that, if you don't celebrate the behavior of others who are attempting to fulfill that physical love in themselves, you are a bigot and one who hates people. So the way in which they, the world has defined love is radically different than how Jesus Christ defines love for us here in John 13. What does he say? You love one another how? Just as I have loved you. Now, you tell me, brothers and sisters, did Jesus Christ accept you just as you are? In some sense, yes. But what had to happen for that to be possible? He had to die on your behalf so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be adopted into the family of God. God himself is sinless and hates sin so much that he sent his son to die to pay for your sins. Just as God loved us, just as Christ loved us, that is how we are to love each other, which means that we warn each other, we rebuke each other when we're in sin. We don't accept living in a certain way that's outside of the Scriptures as a guise for me, me doing me. But instead, we go to extreme lengths to call to those who are living in sin so that they themselves may know what it is like to be in the family of God and receive the forgiveness that only Christ can can provide. But what is one of the biggest rebukes that Jesus receives while he's on this earth? He dines with who? Sinners. He loves sinners. He spends time around sinners. 
with a specific purpose. And that purpose is to declare to them the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins that they can have in Him. The call here, brothers and sisters, is to not completely distance ourselves from sinners, but to love them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this text gets very specific. He says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, so a person who doesn't live according to the law of love, the one who doesn't live a life attempting to live sinlessly in the power of Christ. And then he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John here sharpens this particular command from the two great commandments that you may have heard before. Love God with all of your heart, all of your personhood, and love your neighbor as yourself. But John gets this more specific. He says that you, the one who is not of God, who is the children of the devil, doesn't love his own brother. Now, now why would he say this? How much does God love us? How much? Is it even quantifiable? Absolutely not. He loves us in infinite measure. So how could someone say that they love God and hate the thing that God loves the most? Your brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Outside of his own glory, the thing that God loves the most is those who he died for. Those who have claimed the blood of Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so it becomes very evident if someone says that they love God, but then they hate other Christians, they can't know God. You see, our sin affects our relationship with God and others. And our sin affects others and doesn't reflect a love of God or others. As a child of God, verse 9 says that you can, in fact, not keep sinning. That as believers, you aren't able to continue to sin. It says if one keeps sinning, he isn't born of God because of the effects of the new birth. Now, if we're not careful... This idea that we can't keep sinning, I think, will be seen in the opposite way that John intends it. Because this idea that you can't keep sinning is actually an empowerment to those who believe. Because that means whatever sin that you are currently struggling with, Christ will give you the power to defeat it at some point. That whatever you're struggling with, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection means that you won't keep going in it. And this should feel like freedom. This should feel very glorious to us. But he says those who continue on in sin, those who don't love their brother, those who don't practice righteousness, it makes it clear who are the children of the devil. And let me say it to you this way. If this is something that we're saying that we're to avoid, if we're to avoid lawlessness, let me just ask you personally to think about where you are tempted to practice lawlessness. Is there an area in your life currently where you know righteousness does not reign? Or maybe where love of brother is not the rule of the day? Because it's one thing to understand the principles of the Scripture. It's another thing to ask of my own life, do I pursue righteousness and do I love my brother? 
Here's the second thing I think this text tells us to, to avoid. Deception. He says in this particular text, let no one deceive you. Now, th- this kind of messes with my idea of deception a little bit. Because what this means is deception is avoidable. But deception feels like it's, it's something that happens to you. Like if you've ever been duped by a magic trick, you're deceived in that moment, and it feels like it's impossible to figure it out. But once you learn that magic trick, you're no longer deceived by the trick. The same thing is true in terms of knowing the Word versus what the devil is constantly trying to deceive us. Deception is an avoidable error. Even from the very beginning, this has been an avoidable error. They were given the truth from God about what Adam and Eve were supposed to do, but they allowed the devil to deceive them, and they themselves went into the works of the devil. But let me me just confess to you. It is very difficult sometimes to not be deceived. It is very difficult to tell the truth from a lie. And all too often, a lie has just enough of the truth to sound right. It has just enough. And in this day and age, I think what also is happening is that lies are spoken loud enough and long enough that you start to feel like you're wrong and they're right. Or maybe it just seems like it isn't worth standing up against a lie that the cost is too high, that it's just easier to be deceived and fall into the lie than it is to stand up against it. Let me just suggest to you that once you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, once you know the sinless Christ, the way to avoid deception is to know the truth. And one of the great condemnations of the church in America, the church in the West, is that those who claim to know Jesus Christ don't know the word of Jesus Christ. They might have an idea of him, but they don't know his word. And so when a lie comes along, we're all too easily deceived because we don't actually know the truth. Let me pose this question to you. When we think about avoiding deception, and we think about the course of our life in terms of what that would look like, let let me pose the question to you this way. Are you giving more time and energy to someone who may be trying to deceive you then you are the truthful Word of God. Because there isn't any number of people on television or in your workplace or, or wherever you are that they want to deceive you. And if you're giving your attention to them, instead of to the Word of God, you're filling your mind with more deception than you are with truth. But, but you might say, Pastor, I, I can't just read the Bible and pray all day. So what do, I, what do I need to do to give more energy to knowing the Word of God? Let me just suggest to you it's three things, and I've said this before, but I want to reiterate it to you. Read the Word of God, pray the Word of God, and meditate upon the Word of God. If you just take the concept of the sinless Christ and think about that all day, there's not enough time in the day for you to think about it. If you try to meditate on what that really means in terms of our life and the implications for the next, that's something that we can think about for for days on end and never reach the end of it. So read the Word, pray the Word, and meditate the Word. And then remember, the whole idea in this particular passage is the person who practices, the person who keeps on. As one 
man rightly said in our class today, practice makes perfect. We must be practicing the right things if we're going to walk as a child of God. Develop the habit of remembering what you read and think about it. Now, those are two things to avoid, but this particular text gives us a few things that we're to pursue as children of God. And I, I know I've run over already. Uh, I'll condense these for you. There's, there's four things, but I'll, I'll do them quickly. Here are the things that we're supposed to pursue as the children of God. Abiding in Christ, the practice of righteousness, a complete and total love of God, and a self-sacrificing love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll say that again. Abiding in Christ the practice of righteousness, a complete and total love for God, and a self-sacrificing love for our brothers and sisters. These are four things that this text says that we're supposed to pursue as children of God. Abiding in Christ, hopefully I have stressed this already uh, for you enough. As you abide in Him, that means you have seen Him and known Him. You've experienced Him. You are grasped by the mental vision of Him. And so let me just say it this way. Once you have seen and know His infinite priceless value, you want to see more and know more of Him. And things that you used to care about, they don't matter as much anymore. So abide in the sinless Christ. Number two, practice righteousness. Make it habitual. Again, there's this contrast that's happening here with the one who keeps on sinning. The natural response for us in our flesh is to sin. But in Christ, it is to see, know, and abide in Christ. And he has made us righteous to set us apart for righteousness. Here's the question. This, I've, I've got to stop here for a second. Sorry. In almost every situation that we're in, while we're developing this practice of righteousness, here's the question that we should be asking. What would it look like to practice righteousness in this situation? What would it look like? But let me encourage you to not ask this when you're already in the heat of a difficult moment. Start thinking about your day. What would it look like to practice righteousness when you reach your desk in the morning? What would it look like to practice righteousness when you interact with your first customer or client of the day? What would it look like to practice righteousness from the moment that you wake up to the moment that you go to bed? What would it look like? All right, number three, hopefully this one I've, I've stressed for you already. I'm just repeating it in some sense for you. To go back to John chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, the life of the believer, the reason that we would pursue righteousness is out of a complete and total love for God. Let me say it to you this way. Experiencing the love of God encourages us to love Him with our entire lives. The basis of everything that we do is love for God. And we must see how great His love is for us, and out of a complete and total love for Him, we live and operate. So that one potentially should have been first, that a complete and total love for Him precipitates all these other items. But according to this text, in verse 5, there, there's something that we need to continually think about in terms of living a life for Him, not just for righteousness' sake, but also for our love of our brothers and sisters. John 13, 35 says, this is actually how we're known if we love our each other. And again, I said this already, but the standard of our love for others is the self-sacrificing love of Christ. The love of Christians for each other has a benefit 
for non-Christians as well. Because what happens when we love each other, non-Christians get to see the love of Christ in us and for each other. But let me just say to you, you must count the cost of what this actually means. Because if you're going to live a righteous life, if you're going to practice righteousness, and you're going to live out of love for others, this type of love will cost you something. It will cost you time. It will cost you resources. It might cost you any number of different things. But listen, when we think about the sinless Christ and the cost that he paid for us, we should be more than willing to sacrifice our lives for righteousness and for others. I hope you're encouraged to see in this particular passage how great Christ actually is and how wonderful it is that he would call us his children and that today you're emboldened and encouraged to live a righteous life that is aimed at loving others from this moment forward. But let me just say to you, friend, if you're here today or you're watching from home, the works of the devil, including sin, will be destroyed by Jesus Christ. When you die, you will face a judgment seat. And if you are on the side of the devil, your life and everything that you think you're building will be destroyed. The only way to guarantee that your works are not destroyed, that you are not destroyed in eternal punishment, is by calling out to God as a sinner, receiving the forgiveness of the sinless Christ. And so I want to invite you to do that today. But brothers and sisters, for us, we must encourage each other to live as the righteous children of God in love for each other and with each other until he returns or take us home. Let's ask him to help us do that today. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this reminder of who you are, the nature of your character, and what you have declared us to be in this particular text. Lord, may we face today differently, knowing that you have empowered us to do what you've called us to do, that we can live righteous lives, we can love each other, we can avoid sin, we can avoid deception because of who you are. And so, Lord, help us to live in this power today. Help us in, to encourage each other out of love to live righteous lives for your glory. Lord, we see the world around us. We see what appears to be the ever-broadening works of the devil, and we're ready for you to come back. We're ready to see you face to face. But we know that you have us here with a specific purpose, and that, that is to reveal your love through our love for each other and our righteous living. So help us to do that today. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.